are at the top of the list as far as hate crimes being um, committed against them. In any case, uh, there was a lot of suffering in Central Europe and Russia in the late 1800s into the early 1900s. Uh, the area uh, that, of course, they wanted to go to, that homeland of theirs, the promised land, was uh, controlled in the late 1800s and early 1900s by the Ottoman Turks, so it was under Turkish control. After World War II, of course, uh, there was a great upheaval in who controlled what. The British really gained control of all of that territory and could have done with it I guess, nearly whatever they wanted to. But what they did was they draw, drew up some lines and said, you people are going to go here and you people are going to go there. And they gave this land, more or less, back to Israel and said, if you're a Jew, you can come back to this land. Now, that's a shorthand for everything that happened, but that's the gist of it. Um, and so Jews came and uh, came first trickling in and, and then in droves. And the modern nation of Israel was born in 1948. There have been wars and conflicts then over that land ever since because the Jews are displacing people who had been there for some long time. Uh, some of them of Arab descent, some of some mixed descent. Uh, there were other ethnic groups in the area as well. Many of them were displaced when Jews came back in the early 1900s. And so some of those people think, well, we have a right to live in this land too. And their claim is strong as well. Now, the history that I just told you is the history that most people in the world would agree on. Uh, which are either, either side that you're on of this. That's, again, I, I didn't tell, get all the details, but either side that you would be on uh, concerning the Palestinian crisis, as it's called, or the homeland of Israel, or whatever it might be. Most people would agree that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of what happened. What people don't agree on is what happened a long time before that. Going back to the time of Abraham and the 4,000 years that have ensued since the time of Abraham and the long history of who possessed the land, why they possessed it, why people were dispossessed from it, and all of that, that's recorded in our Bibles at least for the first 2,000 years. And so tonight, uh, I'm not going to focus on that history. I want to look a little bit at the history we find in the Bible, though, and see the backdrop to what is happening now that is found in the Bible, and really ask the question, what hope is there? for ancient Israel, for modern Israel, and really for all concerned, which would include us. What is the hope of Israel? Let's start by just considering the land of Israel, the land in question, the land that um, multiple groups, ethnic groups and religious groups are laying claim to uh, even as we speak, and willing to fight and die over, even as we speak. What about that, that land of Israel? Is it a land where there are prophecies in Scripture that would say to us, well, 
Israel is supposed to have that land and the Christ is going to come back and set up a kingdom in that land and it's going to reign for a thousand years. And there are a lot of people who are looking at, at, at this as maybe the beginning of that, just misunderstanding and misinterpreting a lot of scripture to get there. Uh, Sandy was telling me somebody had asked her a question the other day. Should we as Christians be expecting the third temple to be built now and erected in Jerusalem? Uh, you know, that's, that's not something that's that we're looking for if we understand what the Bible says. And, and so I'm going to deal a little bit with why not concerning that, not a whole lot, but mainly just to look at the land itself. And, and go back and the first things we'll talk about will be very basic. Most of you will know these things, uh, things we've talked about before when we talk about premillennialism or Zionism. Both of those things, by the way, different things. Zionism was the Jews wanting to come back to the land. Premillennialism, though, is... A, uh, a false religion, a false doctrine, I should say, among some who claim to be Christians, saying that Israel will come back to the land and inhabit it, and that Christ will come and reign there. Both of them are false doctrines based on similar ideas. Let's just start with the basics. God made a promise to Abraham concerning the land. Genesis 12 and verse 7, God said to him, to your descendants, I will give this land. That's a pretty straightforward promise. The boundaries of the land of promise are given in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 18, when God, again speaking to Abraham, uh, says, On that same day the Lord indeed made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So that's basically the extent of the land that God was giving to Abraham. Uh, the river of Egypt is not the Nile. It is uh, uh, the Wadi El Arish, which forms the, basically the border between ancient Israel and ancient Egypt. So it's, it's up along the Mediterranean Sea. And the great river is the river Euphrates that uh, we're more familiar with. You can check a Bible atlas about those things. But the, the possession of the land was to be everlasting. And here is a, a critical point that we need to thoroughly hash out and understand. Because you come to Genesis 17 and verse 8, and God says, I will give you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So a lot of people focus on that word everlasting and say, well, as long as the world's spinning, then Israel has a right to this land. The descendants of Abraham, blessed through Abraham, then through Isaac, and then the descendants of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. That's where the promise tracks in the Bible, the land promise. So the descendants of Jacob or Israel are the ones who have a right to this land. We need to understand what the word everlasting or forever, though, means in Scripture. It's often translated that way, really not the best translation, and we'll see why. Uh, momentarily. Because, among other things, if you just read in this same context, you'll see that circumcision was also supposed to be an everlasting and was an everlasting covenant. Verse 13 of Genesis 17, in this very same context, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So there you have the word everlasting again. Circumcision was also supposed to be an everlasting covenant. Of course, 
physical circumcision was done away with when the law was done away with. The law of Moses was done away with. We know that from many New Testament passages, from the law being uh, nailed to the cross. Uh, Paul will write, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 15, that in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Circumcision doesn't mean anything anymore to the God of heaven. That's not significant to him. It avails nothing with respect to your relationship with him. Paul is at great pains in the book of Galatians to explain that. And surely any true Christian who reads Galatians can see that. So you have this everlasting covenant that was not lasting anymore in the time of Paul. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 28, that's partially explained. I'm not going to go into all of the explanation of it, but partially explained in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, when Paul says that he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And so what Paul is telling us there is, there is a kind of circumcision now, but it's not the right that was made, the covenant that was made with Abraham or later with Moses, but it was, in fact, uh, a circumcision that has become spiritual. And we are marked by God, not by some fleshly sign, but by what is in our hearts. Circumcision is in the heart. That is the seal of the covenant that we are now in with God. It is now a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. Also, in the Old Testament, to... Uh, help us out with this a little further, this idea of everlasting or forever. Uh, There's a really uh, enlightening passage in Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 17 where you have uh, a a man who was taken captive in a war perhaps and he becomes a servant or a slave of an Israelite and he has a choice at one point uh, whether to leave that person who's taken him as a slave and perhaps leave a wife and child he had in that household or to become a slave of the Israelite from then on and the instructions about that are given in Deuteronomy 15 and verse 17 in pretty interesting language Uh, the person who has this individual as a slave it says shall take an awl you know like a uh, sharp instrument take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door and he shall be your servant forever also to your female servant you shall do likewise so anybody who is going to be uh, willingly become a a lifelong slave would have this hole put in his ear as an indication of that but the word that is used I use the word lifelong but that's not the word that's used right the word that's used is forever or everlasting and that tells me something, unless there are uh, people walking around in Israel who've been slaves for four, uh, you know, 3,400 years, uh, this doesn't mean eternally. Everlasting forever in these Old Testament passages doesn't mean eternal. It means perpetual, continual, for whatever period of time we're considering, but not eternally. Uh, a lot of people want to make it mean eternally, but that's just not the meaning of it throughout the Old Testament, really. Often continually, perpetually, uh, something like that, generationally, uh, but not eternally is not the meaning of those words in most contexts, and you can see that. If everlasting and forever in these texts means for all eternity, 
then let me just say this to my premillennial friends. Jews aren't going to inhabit the land for a thousand years. See, that's the argument they make. The land was given to them forever, for everlasting. Well, if the land was given to them forever, everlasting, and that means eternal, then it's not a thousand years, is it? Because eternal is way longer than a thousand years. So this thousand-year reign thing, that just goes out the window for the premillennialists. The Zionists also are going to have to stay on earth from now on and never go to a place called heaven because forever <laughs> the land that's on earth is going to be theirs. But we know something else too about the land that's on earth. Peter tells us one day it's all going to be burned up and destroyed. So there's lots of problems <laughs> with trying to make this land promise be eternal. Lots of problems with it. It can't be. And everybody get what they think they want. So, God fulfilled the promise that he made to Abraham and to the Israelites after Abraham. It is asserted by premillennialists, for instance, and also by Zionists, that the land promise has never fully been fulfilled. I'll read you a quote from a leading premillennialist by the name of uh, John Ryrie, who in his book, The Basis of Premillennial Faith, says... Israel must yet come into possession of that land, for she has never fully possessed it in her history. You hear what he said? Israel has never gotten the land. Never possessed it. Never fully possessed it. It's a phrase he uses. And there are, are, are Zionists who feel about that same way. Maybe we had it for a while, but we haven't had it like we were promised it. And so we deserve it. Joshua 21. In verse 43... As many of you know, the text says, So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. A verse could not be any more plain. It goes on to say, The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he'd sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. And that you've got a guy saying, Israel never fully possessed the land. That's just amazing. In 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 21, the Bible describing Solomon's reign <clears throat> says that, uh, Solomon reigned over the kingdoms from the river, again that would be the river Euphrates, to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. That's the river of Egypt, the Wadi al-Arish. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life, this whole area. Psalm 105 verse 42, God remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant and brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles, and they inherited the labor of the nations. Again, just a statement about them inheriting the land. And you might say, well, they did have it. They had it for a good long time, and then God moved them off of it. He caused the Assyrians to come and take the northern ten tribes and scatter them to the four winds. And then the Babylonians came against Judah and took them into captivity and obliterated nearly everybody else except for those that ran off into Egypt. And so you have the people of God who were promised the land being taken off the land by God's decree. And so shouldn't they get it back? 
Well, he already gave it to them once, so the promise was fulfilled. But he did tell them they were going to come back to it. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 10. Notice this with me. For thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now I may say that uh, verse 11 is one of the most popular verses in the world right now. And uh, almost always uh, taken in a way that uh, sometimes you can take a verse out of context and it kind of still means what it did. And I think that's the case with this. To God's people, it's still true. He has a plan for us and wants to give us hope for the future. But few people know what this verse even means in the context. If you look at it again, what God is saying is, after 70 years of captivity, I'm bringing you back to this place and giving you this land again because I know my thoughts towards you and they're all to give you a future and a hope. And I may tell you that this is our first hint as to what is the hope of Israel. And it's not the land because God said, I'm giving you back the land, but your hope is still out here. The hope of Israel isn't the land. It was something else that God had planned. Are we seeing in the Middle East right now the fulfillment of unfulfilled promises of God? Or are we not rather seeing people divided over religions and ethnic status and national differences willing to kill and be killed to get their way? Are we not seeing the atrocities that ensue when people have missed the true hope of Israel and have not turned to him. Because the hope of Jews and Gentiles is in Christ, not the land. Not the land. The spiritual hope of the physical dispersion is the greatest hope it has. I'm using words there. Uh, probably many of you would understand them. Some may not. But I'd like you to go in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy at this point. And notice with me several verses in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Here we have Moses speaking to Israel at Mount Sinai, not very long before, not, not Mount Sinai, uh, the plains of Moab. Not very long before he passes away, they're about to enter the promised land. They're about to go and take the promised land. But he's warning them that if they don't obey God, they're not going to get to keep it. And some bad things are going to happen to them. So read with me Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 58. If you do not carefully observe all of the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may... Fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, and serious and prolonged sicknesses. 
Moreover, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of the law will the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed. You shall be left few in number, whereas you were as the stars of the heaven in multitude, as God had promised. You will be left few in number, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing, and you shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. Again, words could not be clearer, could they? You don't obey me, I'm taking you off the land. Next verse, then the Lord will scatter you. Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods which neither you you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone, and among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart failing eyes and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, oh, that it were evening. In the evening you shall say, oh, that it were morning because of the fear which terrifies your heart and because of the sight which your eyes see. I gave you a statistic a little while ago about the one ethnic group in the world that has the most hate crimes committed against it. And it's the one that's prophesied of in this passage. And it's still going on. From one end of the earth to the other, a people that is persecuted, hated, and reproached. Now I will say this, and I think this audience knows this, I am in no way advocating hatred, and reproach upon people who identify themselves as Jews. I'm advocating loving them with all we have, just like we love anybody else. But this was a consequence of a decision that Israel made long, long ago. And God had promised that this would be the case. So if you ask me the question, isn't what we're seeing a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, I would say, well, some of it is. It's just not the part people think. Some of it is. The Jews were dispersed. Christians were also dispersed. Some of the ones, in fact, most all of the ones who were dispersed early on were also Jews. Jewish Christians were part of the dispersion in Acts chapter 8, were the main part of the dispersion in Acts chapter 8. And so you have this dispersion of Christians all over the place due to persecution, just like you had dispersion of Israel all over the place due to their disobedience. We come to 1 Peter chapter 1, and Peter begins that epistle in an interesting way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. Which dispersion is he talking about? Which scattering is he talking about? Is he talking about the one from ancient times, the Jews? Is he talking about the Christians who are all over because of persecution? I think he's really probably focused on Jewish Christians, honestly. 
who could fit into either category in some way. But in any case, he's writing to them in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. That he calls them elect according to the foreknowledge of God in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope. What's the hope of the dispersion? Whether it's the one in Deuteronomy 28 or the one in Acts chapter 8, what's the hope of the dispersion? We're begotten again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, to an inheritance that's a physical land that's, you know, on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea that's going to be one day burned into oblivion with the rest of this planet. Is that our hope? No. To an inheritance, undefiled, incorruptible, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. There's the land to which I go. There's the land of my promise. There's the promised land of the dispersion that is given to us through our one and only hope, Jesus Christ. And that's what the world doesn't see. The hope that God had promised was found in the Messiah, the Christ. When Paul arrived in Rome in Acts 28 and verse 20, he tells the Jews who come come to visit him, he says, I've called for you to see you and speak to you because for the hope of Israel I'm bound in chains. He wasn't talking about the promised land. For the hope of Israel I'm bound in chains. It is the Lord who promised Israel hope when all seemed hopeless. In the time of Jeremiah, as the Babylonians were knocking on the door and captivity after captivity and final destruction and captivity of Jerusalem occurs, it is in that time frame that Jeremiah, the prophet who's witnessing it all and who's in Jerusalem when it all comes tumbling down, writes these words in Jeremiah 23 and verse 5 on behalf of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he is called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. When they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought us up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. Notice several things there. The king comes first, and then you get the land. Not the way the premillennialists and the Zionists talk about you get the land and then the king comes. Uh Uh-uh. The king comes, and then you get the promise. The hope of Israel is the king. The king from the root of David. The king to sit on the throne. And so the Apostle Paul will write in Romans chapter 8, and please turn there with me, and read uh, this passage maybe with some new eyes tonight for just a moment. 
Romans 15 and verse 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers. Including the land promise, the seed promise. Jesus Christ has come to confirm all of the promises. That's what he did when he came the first time. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall, who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. What I find is that the hope of Israel is also the hope of the Gentiles. He is the one and only hope of the world. How I love our blessed Redeemer, the hope of the world. What is, what is our response to what's going on? And the violence in the world in the modern nation of Israel and the thousands of innocents who are being slaughtered as a consequence of it on either side. The hope of Israel is the hope of the world. Pray for the innocent who are suffering. Pray for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence. Pray for the souls of men, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the truth is that God doesn't want people murdering one another over a piece of land. He wants them sharing the gospel of his glorious son and bringing them into a relationship with him. The conflict that's going on in the Middle East currently is a consequence of the same tribalism and self-interest that has generated nearly every national and international conflict since the beginning of time. The end of the conflict, the war, the pain, the sorrow there and probably everywhere, I am sure will not come to an end till the end of time. And then, only those who have loved the great Redeemer, the hope of Israel, will come to know peace. Tonight, do you know the great Redeemer? Are you telling the story of the great Redeemer? Will you help the lost come to know him? The hope of Israel. The hope of Gaza. The hope of Athens, Alabama. There's one here tonight who would give your life to God. Trust in his promises in every way. And live for him. Would you give your life to him tonight? Name the name of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the one to come, the fulfiller of the promises and your hope of salvation. Turn away from sin. Be baptized in water for the remission of sins. Please come while we stand and while we sing.